Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Our scripture this morning comes from Matthew uh, 21, verses 1 through 17. I'll be reading in segments. Uh, the first segment is included in the worship guide. Please join in the reading at the, in the bold parts, and you can wave your palms in the air when you do so. Uh, listen for what God is saying to you. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Beth, Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus gave two disciples a task. He said to them, go into the village over there. As soon as you enter, you will find a donkey tied up and a colt with it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anybody says anything to you, say that the Lord needs it. He sent them off right away. Now this happened to fulfill what the prophet said. Say to daughter Zion, look, your king is coming to you humble and riding on a donkey, and on, the, on a colt the donkey's offspring. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had ordered them. They brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them. Then he sat on them. Now a large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others cut palm branches off the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds in front of him and behind him shouted, Hosanna, son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. Who is this, they asked. The crowds answered, it's the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So when Jesus entered Jerusalem on the day that we all call Palm Sunday, my name is Emily, by the way. I'm the pastor here at Urban Village Church, Hyde Park Woodlawn. Um, when he entered Jerusalem on the day that we call Palm Sunday, it was basically kind of a poor man's ticker tape parade, right? This is, this, this is the confetti that was thrown around. And depending on which version uh, you read, Jesus uh, rode a donkey or a colt, or in our passage for today, both. And the idea, though, that they're trying to get at is that Jesus is fulfilling prophecies from both Isaiah and Zechariah, as um, uh, Leslie mentioned earlier. In other words, it's more evidence that he is the one, the one who was promised to fulfill the hopes and dreams of a newer, stronger, more independent and successful Israel, King David 2.0. And this was important, especially to the folks that Matthew was writing to, a community who held very strong Jewish identities. But for our sakes today, the details are a little less important than the point of this action. What was Jesus up to? Why the big to-do? Well, on the other side of town, there was a much bigger, more moneyed, stylized parade featuring the pomp and pride and power of Rome, a parade that was designed on this inaugural day of the Jewish Passover festival that reminded everyone uh, for all of their uh, God worship um, just who was in charge up in here, right? And there, greeting Pontius Pilate with his lockstep soldiers and decorated war horses with open arms and a wide welcome, stood the temple leaders, priests and politicians who had handed over the trust, 
treasure, and self-respect of their people to a system that had colonized their bodies, their minds, and the very institution, the temple, the very institution that was charged with caring for their souls. In this tale of two parades, the power differential is pretty much laughable, right? And yet scripture says that everyone in Jerusalem was shook. The Greek word is, is something is along the word that we, that we would get the word seismic from. They were seismic, seismically shook by Jesus' arrival, which led folks to ask, yo, who dis? Who dis indeed, right? Maya Angelou, the author and poet, once said, when someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time. Jesus arrives in Jerusalem on the back of a couple of borrowed animals in a parody parade that is basically the equivalent of bringing a Ford Fiesta to the Indy 500, a knife to a gunfight, a bottle of Boons to Sonoma Valley, Cardi B to a Nicki Minaj concert. <laughs> is it satire? I think it kind of is. It's like a first century version of tweet baiting. But I, I really have no idea, but I think it's kind of funny if you think about it. Jesus showed himself, right? In the eyes of power, he was a nobody, nothing. But from another angle, he is someone who was fierce, fed up, and fearless. Because after this bit of political satire, we see him get real serious. Then Jesus went into the temple and threw out all those who were selling and buying there. He pushed over the tables used for currency exchange and the chairs of those who sold doves. He said to them, it's written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a hideout for crooks. Jesus heads to the temple and seeing the money changers and sacrificial animal sellers, he gets overwhelmed with frustration. And the way that this story is often interpreted, I'll admit I've always interpreted it this way myself, it's often interpreted as anger at the sellers and the money changers, that they are there to financially exploit people at the moment of their worship, which is not entirely untrue, but actually it's not the sellers that Jesus is angry with, it's actually the buyers. And the clue is found in what he says in the moment, this quote that he says um, from uh, the prophet Jeremiah. He says uh, that Brett read, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a hideout for crooks. And this passage from Jeremiah is about people who come to worship like they're looking for fire insurance. It says, you will steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, sacrifice to Baal and go after other gods that you don't know, and then you come and stand before me in this temple that bears my name and say we are safe? Do you regard this temple as a hiding place for criminals? This is the passage that Jesus is referring to. All week long, folks have been acting like crooks, taking advantage of weaker people, disregarding those in need, being a disgrace as far as it comes to representing their faith. And they want to come up and make payment without a changed heart or a repentant spirit. That ain't how it works. It's not that we have to be perfect in every way. But we should strive for self-honesty and alignment with our faith, particularly in the act of worship. It's not about making payment. It's about being transformed. But they have completely lost sight of it. Jesus is tired of theological malpractice and hollow religiosity. He is done with the temple being a vehicle for fraudulent faith. Uh, so the first week that the new senior pastor at our old church started, uh, he wrote a post on the newly formed church blog that talked about how Jesus saved him from being gay. 
so that he could become senior pastor, published author, and nationally recognized speaker, and the happily hetero family man that he was. He wanted everyone, especially those struggling with the sin of homosexuality, to feel the same redemption. And he also wanted to make sure that no true Christian confused the love Christians are called to show people in the LGBTQ community with an affirmation of their sinful lifestyle. Now, there's a part of me that wanted to affirm his story, everyone's story, and say that your truth is your truth and peace be with you. But honestly, I'm not really about that life. Uh, so Alyssa and I both wrote that man essays in the comment section, not like tweets or 10-second snaps like book chapters. Uh, I said, personal journeys are important, but I told him, look, a person who says that you can love LGBTQ people while telling them that their lives are sin can't be just as right as someone who says that love is love is love, and more importantly, that God is love is love is love. Only one of those things can be true. And I said to him that this hate the sin, love the sinner kind of love he was preaching didn't work because you were hating and not loving an essential part of who people were and that his experience didn't negate theirs. It didn't go over well with him or the congregation, uh, but the blog did get shut down. <laughs> and uh, after one post. <laughs> and Alyssa and I were already thinking of leaving, and, and this incident gave us the push to go. So during immense suffering, my girlfriend and I often remind each other of a phrase that has been the cornerstone of this past year for us. The church is abused and abusive, we say. More than ever, this past year has revealed a theological framework to me that has been dismantling of my own family, abusive in nature, and exclusive in belief. So when do I speak up? When do I call it out? One of my seminary professors recently said, keep the engagement, keep communication. With your presence, you bring things with you. Therefore, perhaps a better question is how do I call out the abuse and in which way do I speak up if every time I arrive, I am also, sorry, I am also calling out. As a queer woman of color in a heteronormative, conservative, Bible Belt living, deeply loving family, my existence every time that I travel south is often squashed by the Christian Bible. And if I've learned anything about communication, it is that you cannot talk to someone who does not want to listen. So the how and how do I speak up is to arrive. Last weekend, I landed in Dallas for my sister's engagement party. And in a house where the majority of my identities are not welcomed, I am finding that speaking up does not always mean speaking, but existing in a space that may be tension-filled, a space that you still deserve even when the abusive theology disowns you. Sometimes the best way to call out malpractice is to arrive against all odds. You're broken down and tired of living life on a merry-go-round and you can't find the fire but I see it in you 
so we're gonna walk it out and move mountains. We're gonna walk it out and move mountains. So our eyes up, rise like the day, rise up, rise unafraid, rise up. said to them, it's written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a hideout for crooks. People who were blind and lame came to Jesus in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and legal experts saw the amazing things he was doing, and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were angry. There's a kind of satisfaction that comes from righteous anger. But we can't run on anger and self-righteousness forever. These are acids that should be engaged with carefully. Otherwise, they will corrode your psyche and your spirit. Calling people out becomes its own sort of purity culture, and it can easily disfigure you. For those of us who have been burned or bored or seen others burned by Christianity or the church, it can feel affirming to read the story of how Jesus got fed up and flipped some tables. But here we see he didn't stop there. Jesus came to call his people out, but he also came to call them in. The temple had become a perfect mirror for the world, operating as a transactional, image-oriented, performance-based culture. But he didn't want to burn it all down. His people were doing just fine on their own with that. What he wanted to do was to restore it to its original purpose, its original purpose. He wanted the temple to be ground zero for restoration, a, a place where mutual sacrifice is practiced and radical hospitality is the way of being. This is what it was made for. This is what the tradition was made for, and he knew that it was possible. So the summer before I started high school, my dad was deported. We'd all been out of the country, but when he came back, U.S. immigration decided to cancel his legal status and claimed that he had been in the U.S. on forged documents. Now, we'd been in the U.S. for about 12 years, but overnight, we became, in the eyes of the INS, based on false accusations, illegal immigrants. Beyond the trauma of not knowing if my dad would ever be able to come home, 
none of us could legally work. I mean, I mowed some lawns, my mom babysat, but we ate up our savings with lawyers and such trying to bring my dad back. There wasn't a whole lot of money left for food and clothes. We were already living small. When we first came to this country, dad worked minimum wage. I remember furnishing our home by going trasher hunting. Uh, we knew when each little township had garbage pickup the next morning, and we'd drive around the night before picking up salvageable stuff. My parents still have one of the big green lamps we got prominently displayed in their living room. So I noticed that during this time, though, people from our church started really being intentional, not just about bringing us the occasional casserole, but inviting us over for dinner. I'll never forget Mark, a single 40-year-old ex-Marine who didn't have a lot himself and couldn't cook, brought just a fat stack of those McDonald's like meal vouchers they used to sell at schools for fundraisers at Halloween. <laughs> and chicken nuggets are still the bread of life for me to this day, <laughs> as you can see. Uh, those meals sustained us. Uh, those people made us welcome at their tables. And they gave us hope when the future seemed really uncertain. The most healing thing the church has acted for in my life is a community that has poured itself out to me since moving to Chicago. In psychology, it is believed that the ramifications of not having human connection are overwhelmingly damaging to the psyche. In spiritual practice, the act of communion has been a sign of restoration, a house where I am welcomed, and a people who brought in the term a familial heart. The church, Christians, and specifically UVC are points of relief. Two weeks ago, I walked into UVC after spending more than a month away and found fellowship where I had felt most alone in my life. I was invited to read scripture and was taken back into a community that I have a constant tendency to leave. The most healing thing the church has spoken, the most healing thing the church has reminded me of is how holy I am to serve the body of Christ, to serve the blood of Christ, and to come just as I am in a space of vulnerability and not be rejected for, per for perhaps the first time in my church faith. For when the chief priests and legal experts saw the amazing things he was doing and the, the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were angry. They said to Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, he answered. Haven't you ever read from the mouths of babies and infants you've arranged praise for yourself? Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. When he saw the contempt they had for these children even, the weakest among them, he realized how much more they loved their law and order over human need and spiritual pain. He grasped that they were so fragile that they would be threatened by truth spoken from children. And so then he was done trying to reform the church from the inside. He walked away from that center of power. Scripture says he left Jerusalem, but the Greek word is better translated as abandoned. Jesus abandoned the den of thieves and went to Bethany where he was staying with Lazarus, a man that he had brought back to life. Jesus was done trying to reform people who would not be reformed, and he turned his attention to the places where God's work was present and active. 
He didn't give up on his faith. He stopped wasting time on a dying institution that had abandoned its purpose. Instead, he devoted his time, his talents, and his resources to the places and the people where he knew his ministry would not only be received, but could take root and bear fruit. So I think what I've learned from these experiences of both theological abuse and, and healing is that faithful people and the faith they adhere to are way more complicated than denomination or doctrine or statements of belief led on. I think I've started to rebuild my understanding of God and what it means to be and live as a Christian, not just from the ground up, but from the way that, and not from verses that people cling to, but from the way that they live those verses and how those actions affect the world around them. I think, too, that it's reinforced to me that it's important to really feel, live, and think about what it means to be Christian and what your faith values mean. For example, I think that the pastor that I mentioned first is a good man at heart. He was brave enough in the last election to call Donald Trump a misogynist, a bigot, and a narcissist with immigration policies that were unbiblical and un-American. And I think he probably did sincerely find some peace when he decided to live hetero. But wanting others to have that same peace caused him to do something destructive. On the other hand, the white, conservative, Southern Baptist folks who I went to church with as a kid, I know a bunch of them now are down with making America great again in the name of the Lord. And they stand for things now and did even then that are so offensive to me as a person of color and an immigrant. But in the clutch, when the immigrant was in, and the stranger was in front of them and in need, they met those needs. And they showed love. And I wonder if they ever think about how that conflicts with the positions they hold. But you just keep walking hand in hand. Growing up Catholic, growing up Mexican, I was raised to ask no questions. Question nothing and trust what you're told. As I dismantle this way of living and as I deconstruct every abusive and healing experience, that has caused me to somehow stumble through the doors of UVC. I recognize that the result of living this life is question asking, and that the only absolute I should settle for is that God is a loving God. The human experience of suffering and the divine experience of healing has shaped my faith as one of unknowing, a realization that I do not know and that I do not yet understand the corners of God and the expansiveness of Christ that abusive theology has claimed to find. So I ask, I ask, I ask, and sometimes God answers, and sometimes God is silent. But my state of unknowing and my heart posture of question has been the greatest spiritual awakening I come home to. And I hope that if I ever come to an answer, I'm continuously moved to ask another question of the God of yes, the God of excess, the God of unconditionality, and be secure and uprooting and unknowing for the sake of more. For that we have each other, and for that we have each other. Oh, all we need, all 
And for that we have each other. And for that we have each other. So we rise up, rise like the day, rise up. High like the waves, rise up. And I'll do it a thousand times again. So we sing, rise up. In spite of the ache, rise up. Rise unafraid, rise up. And we'll do it a thousand times again for you. to see the ways that people have been wounded, discarded, and even abused by the church. It's devastating to hear how scripture or faith have been twisted in service to ideologies that are less about human restoration and more about self-preservation. Jesus loved his people, and he loved his tradition enough to call it to a higher standard. When he walked out of the temple, he didn't abandon that faith. He abandoned the institution that had failed its charge and purpose. And he set about building something that was truer and more life-giving, even as he knew it would be the end of him. This week upcoming, this week is often called Holy Week, which sort of ironically is all about the ways that Jesus confronted what was unholy, This week reminds us not only of all that Jesus did then and there, but all that we are called to do here and now. Like Jesus, to love our tradition deeply enough that we're willing to confront it. Like Jesus, to stick with it and to reform it and call it to a higher purpose. And like Jesus and so many others who followed after him, to rise up like the day, unafraid a thousand times again and again and again, to build something together which calls us to truth and courage, honesty and love, and life abundant. Let us pray. God, we thank you for the courage that you demonstrated to us and that you transmit that courage to us by the acts of those who have followed behind you, have passed it on and passed it on and passed it on such that it has landed before us this day. Help us to be people who love you, who love your story, who love your transformative work in our lives and the lives of those around us, who can see what it can do in spite of all that it has done to work against its purpose. Help us to be people who stay committed even as we struggle for higher truth and possibility as your gospel finds its way into this world. Help us to rise up like the day, 
unafraid a thousand times. Just like the name of your son Jesus in whose name we pray, amen.